some things in life are really difficult, right? Some things are, are really challenging, like trying to get uh, your kid to go to sleep, right? Uh, a young child, like we had a lot of new, new parents, new, newer parents anyway, with really young children, new babies, you know, and trying to get them to go to sleep is, is a challenge, I mean, who am I kidding? Actually, uh, trying to get your teenager to go to bed is a challenge uh, sometimes. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily get easier. Sorry, uh, young parents. Uh, it just gets different. Um, but it's really hard, right? Am I right? Am I right? Any amens in the room? Anybody experience that? It's hard sometimes to get your kids to go to sleep, right? They act like they've never slept before. Like, they act like you're, like, trying to, like, do, like, you're going to do some wicked, evil thing. No, I'm not going in there, right? You know, I'm, I'm sleeping. I'm not tired. No. You know, and, like, I don't get it because, personally, I love to sleep, right? I, I, I think about sleep a lot. I'm looking forward to sleeping later today. Maybe a nap's in order. It was a late night. It's kind of sad after football uh, yesterday. Uh, but anyway, uh, and also needed to finish up the sermon, but... Uh, <laughs> Because of football and the Hoosiers, so at least that was positive, right? Leading the Big Ten, five and zero. That's great. Um, anyway, right? But I love sleep, right? I, I love it. I, I'm borderline sleeping right now because I'm so tired, um, <laughs> preaching in my sleep. Uh, seriously, though, what what is it that eventually happens in us that the transitions like these these young babies, children who who don't want to sleep, who are like fighting to go to sleep to like eventually we get to the place where it's like we understand we like this we need this we want this right and I think it's that eventually we discover hey sleep's good for me I actually feel better about my life the next day if I if I get a good amount of sleep like I'm able to enjoy life more uh, and it's it's just joyful to sleep isn't it I mean it's just a restful beautiful thing well there's something else that uh that seems to be difficult too and that's that's getting Christians to share the gospel Right. Getting Christians to share the gospel. I'll give you a little statistic here. There was a survey a while back that said that 60% of all Christians felt no obligation to share their faith. 60%. Right? 60% felt there's no obligation to share their faith. Uh, I saw another statistic uh, several years back. I'm sure it's actually probably increased. But at that point, uh, I think Barna said in like 2005, like 40% of uh, born-again Christians had not shared their faith with someone else in the last year. Not, not in the last month, but like the last 12 months, had not even done it once. You know, why is that? Why is that? Well, last week we looked at uh, the beginning of Romans, right? We were studying through the book of Romans this year. Uh, we looked at the first seven verses of Romans, and we kind of saw Paul's call, right? We even looked back at Acts chapter 9 at his conversion. We saw his commissioning, right? His, you know, been given this, this charge, this mission to be an ambassador of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, but what we clearly see throughout the Bible is that it's not just a call for Paul, it's not just a call for the apostles. It's not just a call for, for church leaders or, or clergy or anybody. It's a call on every single Christian. It's a commission for every single believer in Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a missionary. Right? If you're a Christian, by default, you're on mission with the gospel. Matthew 28, right? the Great Commission, Jesus says, he doesn't say just to his 12. He says to everyone who follows him, it's a commission to all of us, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? That's, a, that's a call on all of us. So why do so many of us struggle to share the gospel? Why do we struggle? Why is it so difficult? Well, my hope is that in our text today, maybe we'll, we'll kind of understand uh, a little bit more about what it is within us that keeps us, prevents us from doing that. And maybe even through looking at Paul's kind of eagerness to preach the gospel is what we'll see in the text today. Uh, maybe even through seeing that and what motivates him that, that our hearts would be renewed. Our hearts would be transformed by the power of the gospel to want to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ to, to everyone we meet. Right, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 1, 8 through 17 this morning. If you turn there in your Bibles, on your app, uh, in those black ESV Bibles on your row, it's on page uh, 939, I believe is where it starts. Um, by the way, if you don't have a, a Bible, we have some uh, free gray paperback ESV Bibles out here on the, the connection table. We'd love for you to take one of those as a gift, uh, free, uh, so you can have God's Word to, to put into your life. But let's stand together. Recognize the authority of God's word as it speaks to us this morning. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word and that you speak to us through it. And we pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, that, that today uh, you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit uh, to hear what you have to say to us, to be reminded uh, of, of the, the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel to transform our hearts, to transform anyone's heart. Lord, that we would, we would not be ashamed. We would, we would have confidence and boldness and a willingness to, to love and to extend the hope that we have in you. We would see that we're under obligation as well, but it's a joyful obligation, not a have to, but a get to, a want to. Would you renew our hearts? Would you open our eyes to the people around us in the city? And would you fill us this morning with a, a renewed passion to share the good news of Jesus? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> so last week, we, we looked at the first seven verses, and, and really it's kind of Paul's introduction to this church in Rome, right? And we established that this is a church that, that Paul, he did plant this church, and like a lot of his letters, he's writing the churches he planted, or at least one of his associates kind of planted. But this is not a church that he has that kind of personal connection with. He's, he didn't plant it. No one he knows personally, like is deeply connected with him, planted it. Uh, it's a church, it's a place at this point in his, his life, Paul has never visited. He doesn't know them. He's not been there personally. Uh, but And so the first seven verses were essentially last week, just Paul introducing himself, right? Here's who I am, right? Here's who I am. I'm Paul, an apostle of God, set apart for the gospel of God. And here's the message that I preach. Here's the gospel, and here's my authority. Here's why you should listen to me. Here's why we should be connected. Here's why we should partner up, essentially, is what he was doing. And this week's text is largely Paul just kind of continuing that introduction and, and kind of communicating right off the bat, largely, just his longing to go to Rome. His longing to go to Rome. If you look again, verses 8 through 10, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Right? So this is a church he didn't plan, he's not visited, but it's a church that he's heard about. Right? It's a church that he's heard about, not only him, but really the Christian world knows about this church. They know about Christians in Rome. I mean, think about it. At this point in history, Rome is the center of the world. Right? It's the cultural center. It's the political center. It is the place. It's the, the symbol of everything worldly about the world. And, and so Paul and other Christians were aware. Hey, word got around. There are Christians in Rome, right? The capital, the place, the city. There are Christians there. There's a church there. They're aware about it. They know about this church. And Paul has heard about it. They, they celebrate the fact that the gospel has even gotten to Rome. It's even gone there, and it's transforming lives, renewing lives by its power. I mean, that's the significance. They're aware of this church. 
And, and we'll see as we work our way through this letter, not only was Paul aware that this church was there, right, and aware that they were there and had heard about them, but he, he's aware of specific things about this church. He's aware of even issues that they are working their way through. Like, I mean, this is a church, you know, like most churches in that day, comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. When we say Gentile, that just simply means anybody who's not Jewish, right? Anybody from the rest of the world. And so it's a, it's a church comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but the Roman the, Rome church, the church in Rome, the Roman church, is really probably a heavier percentage of Gentile Christians than it is Jewish Christians, just given the makeup of that city. And so there's some issues that he'll kind of get into there and, and address some specific things as we work our way through. Well, and it, but he's communicating this, this longing, right? This, this longing. He's heard about this church. He's prayed for this church. He wants to go. He wants to visit this church. Why? Why does he want to get to Rome? Well, he gives us two reasons in this passage. The first is seen in verses 11 and 12, where he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, Paul certainly wants to encourage this church. Like, he's got this call. He's got this commission. He's an apostle of God. You know, somebody who's encountered Christ face-to-face, seen the resurrected Christ, been called by the resurrected Christ to this mission of the gospel. He wants to go. He wants to share the gifts. He wants to share the mission he's been given. He wants to encourage and build up this church. But not only that, he wants to visit them, he says, so that they might encourage him. Right, so they might be an encouragement to Paul. Do you hear that? Mutual encouragement. That's the first reason why he wants to, to go visit this church. He wants to mutually be encouraged. He wants to encourage them, but he wants to be encouraged by them. The Apostle Paul. Right, so if the Apostle Paul needs encouragement from other believers, needs connection to community, needs to be built up in his faith by others, how much more do we? You'll read through the pages of Scripture in the New Testament, and you will find no understanding of a Christian who just relates to God on their own. I mean, the letters, by and large, are written to communities, churches, local churches, bodies of believers. We are, we're made to be not only in, in communion with God, but in, in community with one another, we, we need brothers and sisters to build us up in the faith. That's why we do what we do here. That's why, you know, I'm not bashing other churches that take breaks over Christmas break just because this city kind of empties out. But we don't take breaks on Sundays. We don't cancel gatherings on Sundays. Why? Because it is important for us to come together, to be renewed in our covenant with God, to be encouraged, to be mutually encouraged and built up in our faith. If the Apostle Paul needs that, I would say that all of us in this room, we need that too, right? We need that. So he wants to go for mutual encouragement. That's, that's the, the first reason. But he gives a, a second reason found in verse 13. All right, verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wants mutual encouragement, but he also wants to come and he wants to preach the gospel and he wants to reap a harvest. He wants to reap a harvest. But, but notice what he says here. This is interesting. He wants to reap a harvest both within the church. When he says, I want to reap a harvest among you, he's talking about the church. He's writing to Christians here. He said, I want to come preach the gospel to the church and I want to reap a harvest in the church, but he also wants to reap a harvest outside the church because he says, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Again, the rest of the people in the city who, who don't know God. If you catch this, this is profound because what Paul is making clear here is that the gospel is for believers and for unbelievers, right? It's not just for unbelievers. It's not just the message for, for people to hear, to come to faith, to come to saving faith in Christ, to, to be introduced to Jesus, to know him, to connect with him. But it's, it's also the message that we need to grow in our faith. We don't, you don't meet Jesus through the gospel and then just like buckle up, tighten up the, you know, everything and, and just like white knuckle it, right? You bear down and you do your best and you try your hardest to fix yourself and get yourself together. That's not how we grow. That's not how we grow. This is profound. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying the gospel, the church needs the gospel too. This is what will grow you in your faith. 
This is what will renew your hearts day by day. This is what we need. We need the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. We need to be reminded who he is, what he's done, and what that means for us. Who we are now in light of him. The righteousness of God. Sons and daughters of God. We need to be reminded of that so that we anchor ourselves, we root ourselves in that identity, we live out of that identity, and that's how we grow. Right? That's how we obey. That's how we serve. We need the gospel too. If you catch this, this is, this is so profound. We all need the gospel. Paul's essentially saying here what, what Pastor Tim Keller has, has been quoted many times as saying. Right? The gospel's not just the ABCs of our faith. It's not just the entry-level material. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's, it is our faith. It's everything. It's not like we get that and we move on to the advanced material. It is the advanced material. It's the whole material. It's all of it. It's all of it. It's through the gospel that we grow. Like this is a, a life-changing understanding. Right? I, I know how this changed my life. Right, when, Even years of serving in ministry, where it was like this understanding of, of just operating under this understanding that the gospel is how we meet Jesus, and now here's where we do this stuff. Right, We work hard to do this stuff. And I'm saying the gospel should bear fruit in your life. There should be good works. There should be some things happening on. Don't hear me saying that. But it's not by us just, you know, bearing down and making it happen. It's through faith in the gospel. It's through faith in the gospel that we grow. It's it's everything. This was transformative for me. It was freeing for me. To not feel like I'm under this obligation to keep my, my relationship with God based upon my own performance. But to rest in the finished work of Christ and let that renew my heart. Let it transform me to, to live for his glory. This is, this is huge. But, but Paul here is, is longing to come for Rome for the sake of mutual encouragement and to reap a harvest both inside and outside the church through pe- preaching the gospel. And, and this is a man who is eager. He is eager to preach the gospel. That's what, that's what he says in verse 15, right? Look at verse 15. He's eager to preach the gospel. We've established already, right, with some statistics, and and honestly, beyond the statistics, like, can we be honest in the room? If you peek into your own heart and you think about your last week, your last month, maybe even the last year for you, are we not, sometimes not so eager to share the gospel? Maybe eager to avoid sharing the gospel at times? That we are maybe ashamed, afraid, fearful of what the reaction might be, so we just Keep the lips sealed. Right? So it's not just the statistics, it's, it's our own hearts. Right? We're, we're not so eager to preach and share the good news of Jesus with others. Um, but maybe understanding what makes Paul eager to preach the gospel will help us understand what's really underneath our maybe lack of excitement to, to do so. And, and maybe even more, it will help us maybe be transformed to become more eager. So, so what made Paul eager to share the gospel? Well, he first understood that he was obligated. He was obligated to share the gospel. As we says, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He was under obligation. Now that sounds kind of contradictory, right? How does eager and obligated go together, right? How's I really want to do something and I'm, I have to do something. That's kind of what obligated sounds like. And, and the Greek word here for obligation, maybe it doesn't even make it any better. It might make it worse. It really translates to being a debtor, right? I owe the gospel to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. That's what Paul's saying. I owe the gospel. I owe them the gospel. Now let's understand that, right? There's a couple different ways you can get yourself into debt, isn't there? Right? First, you can, borrow, you can borrow something, right, from someone, and then you're in their debt. You borrow and you, until you give it back, until you pay it back, you're in their debt. But there's another way that you can be indebted to someone. A mutual friend or, or uh, someone else's friend gives you something to give to them, right? And until you give that to them, you're in that person's debt. It's, a, it's another way. And like, so say I borrow $100 from you. I'm in your debt until I pay it back. But say your friend gives me $100 to give to you. Well, I'm likewise in your debt until I give you what's yours, 
what has been entrusted to me to give to you. I'm indebted, I'm obligated to give it to you. That's the sense in which Paul means he's in debt here, right? That he's a debtor to the gospel, that he owes the gospel, that he's obligated. He, He hasn't borrowed anything from this church in Rome. He has not taken anything from them. But Jesus Christ himself has entrusted Paul with the gospel. And he's entrusted him to share it with others. He's given it to him, not just for himself, right? He, he's called him to himself. He's shown him grace and forgiveness and mercy, not just so Paul can enjoy that himself, but so that he might share that, so that he might give it to others. He's been called. He's been commissioned. I mean, last week we looked at the, the first part of Acts chapter 9 with Paul's conversion, you know, when he was Before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And before he met Christ on that road to Damascus, his life was consumed with crushing the church. He was consumed with with that, destroying Christianity. Yet he meets and encounters Christ, and his life is transformed to being going from the man who's consumed with destroying the church to becoming a man who's consumed with Jesus, consumed with the mission of the gospel, consumed with proclaiming the good news of Jesus and spreading the church. From place to place to place. Well, a little later in Acts 9, uh, you see the Lord uh, speaking to a, a man named Ananias through, the, through a vision. And he's instructing, uh, he's instructing Ananias to go find Paul in Damascus there. And, and, and then called Saul, of course. To lay hands on him that he might regain, regain his sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and all that. And of course, you can imagine, Ananias has heard of Saul of Tarsus. Like, this guy who hunts down, has Christians killed. Heard of him. I'm a little... Uh, can, Hold on here. Really? That guy? You sure? You want me to go talk to him? I don't know if this is a good idea. Right? And this is what the Lord says to Ananias, Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so you see right here, from the mouth of Jesus, Paul has this mission given to him. He's been given this special call to take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles as well as to the people of of Israel. But he has this special commission and call to take the gospel to the Gentiles, all those outside the covenant community of Israel. And, And Paul was obligated. He was obligated in that sense. Jesus has entrusted him with this mission. He he needs to do it. And this isn't unique to Paul. Right? This is not unique to Paul or the other leaders in, in, in the church that we read about in the New Testament. This is the call and obligation that's on every single one of us as believers in Christ. All of us have been commissioned. We are obligated to take the gospel and share it with those around us. All of us. All of us. Right? For what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To Jesus. And he says, to all of us, go therefore and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. First right? Peter 2.9. Peter writes there, but you are to the church, right? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been given this mission. We're all called to it. The gospel's not just for you. Evangelism is not this optional extra that we can like, ah, nah, I think I'll pass on that part. I'll do this other stuff. I'll enjoy the, the benefits of, of being forgiven and knowing Christ and, and everything, but I, I'll pass on that part. That's a, it's not. It's not an optional extra. It's an obligation. We're called to and it's an obligation that Paul was eager to do. It wasn't a have to. It was, a, I get to do this. I want to do this. Right? He was also eager because he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Right? So the question for us today is, are you eager or are you ashamed? Right? Are you eager or are you ashamed? Think on that for a moment. I remember right after uh, I became a Christian in college, I was a college student, um, and it was a journey through those first few years of college, uh, so it was the third of my uh, five years of undergrad, um, and so uh, year three, um, the Lord awakens me, I kind of hit this low point uh, of knowing, just 
you know, everything had collapsed around me. I had sought to find a standing of my own in the world through, you know, various points in my life growing up through grades, through sports, through relationships, girls especially, obviously, right? Uh, dating relationships. Uh, and that, all of that came crashing down on me. Uh, all of that failed me and, and was crushing me. And in that moment, my junior year, these friends, first friends I had ever met in college, uh, who were all Christian guys, the three of them, they were the ones who were there at that moment where I was at this low point, and they just kept loving on me, kept pointing me to Jesus, and, and eventually the Lord opened my heart to believe. And I kind of gone through the motions of going to Bible studies and hanging out with Christians in community and was like doing it and then going and just doing something else later, right? But eventually the Lord in that moment awoke my heart to like, I believe this. I need this. I want this, right? And I clung to Jesus. But in those early moments that year of first becoming a Christian, I'm, I'm meeting with my campus minister. We're studying the Bible. And then sometimes he'd be like, let's, let's study the Bible. Let's go out to lunch and do this. And so we're at lunch, and there's like, you know, a table right here and a table right here, and there's people there. And I'm just like, he starts talking about Jesus. He starts opening the Bible and, and reading things to me and talking to me and asking me questions about my faith. And I'm just like, could, could you be a little quieter? Somebody right over there. I don't, I don't really know them, but they're right there, you know? Um, let's keep it quiet. Let's maybe not, don't talk, don't say Jesus' name, you know? I didn't necessarily say that to him, but internally I'm just like, what is happening, right? Can we be quiet? Like, I don't want them to know. I mean, I like Jesus. I'm glad that he saved me, but they don't need to know about that, right? They don't need to know. And I was ashamed, right? I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. And so here's my question. Are you eager? Are you ashamed? Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was eager to share it, to spread it. And I know some of you are like, well, sure, he's Paul, right? Uh, it had to be easier for Paul. I mean, he's not living in our day and age. He's not in this culture that we live in that's oftentimes very hostile to the gospel, Right? He, he's not here. He doesn't experience life like we experience it. it. It must have been easier for Paul to be eager to share the gospel, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Well, yeah, really, right? Think about that. Think about it. If you know your history, the, the time that Paul was living in was not exactly, uh, you know, pro-gospel, you know? Pretty hostile culture to the gospel. Uh, he lived in a culture that, that had, you know, that it resulted in ridicule. It resulted in great suffering for Paul. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28 that records some of the things that Paul uh, experienced personally as a result of his eagerness to preach the gospel, his not being ashamed of the gospel, right? Second uh, Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28, right? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that's not like Colorado stoned. That's like I got hit with a bunch of rocks, okay? Um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Uh, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst and often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me for my anxiety. Of my anxiety for all the churches. That's Paul. That's what he encountered, right? Pretty hostile culture to the gospel. It wasn't easier for him. In many ways we could say it was probably harder for him than what any of us will likely experience. I mean, in every culture throughout all times, the gospel has been offensive. But Paul was, was willing to experience hostility, willing to experience that ridicule, and even in the midst of it, still say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I'm eager to preach it. Because he understood the power of the gospel. He understood the power. Right? The truth is, in every time period in history, in every culture, the gospel is offensive. It is offensive. Think about it. It offends everyone. Does it not? I mean, the gospel offends irreligious people who are indulgent, 
who just want to like, hey, I want to be my own God. I want to, you know, maybe they don't use that language, but it's like, I want to be the own, my own authority. I want to call the shots. I want to be the Lord of my own destiny. I want to do what I want to do. I want to indulge in what I want to indulge in. I'm going to do what I want to do, right? The gospel offends them because what does the gospel come in and say? Guess what? You're not in control, right? There's someone who's sovereign over you. And not only that, you're a sinner. You're a wicked sinner. What you're doing is, is sin, and you need rescue. You need to, to love and honor this one who is above you, who loves you, has pursued you in the person and work of Christ. It's offensive, right? It's offensive to say, I'm going to tell, no, you don't get to tell yourself what to do. No, someone else does, right? That's offensive. That's an offensive thing. It's also offensive to religious people. Religious people who want to perform and want to, like, I'm going to go to church I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to give my tithe. And that way God will accept me and he will love me. I'm going to perform. And even for non-religious people who are just like, I'm going to live a good life, right? I'm going to to be nice to people. I'm going to do good things. I'll be okay because I'm a good person. And the gospel says, no, it offends them. It says, no, you know what? All of your good works are like a polluted garment, says God in Isaiah. Like uh, uh, filthy rags. And, And the frame of reference really is like minstrel rags. That's God's language in Isaiah. A polluted garment are all of your righteous deeds. You cannot do enough good things to merit a standing with God. Religious, non-religious, you can't do enough. All of your good deeds add up to nothing. You're not good. That's what the gospel says. Only one person is good. His name's Jesus. And you need to be saved through faith in him. Right? And then that offends everyone else who's like, well, you just want to find your own way in the world. Like, you know, relate to God however you want to, through whatever means you want to. You want to worship Jesus, you want to worship Buddha, you want to worship Allah, you want to worship, you know, whatever. It'll be fine, right? But no, the gospel says, no, it's only through faith in Christ that we are saved. The gospel offends everyone. It offends everyone. It always has, and it always will. And yet Paul's not ashamed of this offensive gospel. And he explains why. Verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, you have to understand this. Right? And I'm, this sermon, we don't have enough time to do justice to all that's in this text today. Um, so we're just going to touch on it in a way. And really, throughout the rest of the letter, we'll be unpacking these two verses. I mean, these two verses, verses 16 and 17, are, are Paul's central thesis to the letter to the Romans. Right? This is his gospel in a nutshell, if you will. A uh, little passage here. Here's the gospel. And let's unpack it for the next 16 chapters. Right, and we'll start working our way through it um, slowly, but surely we'll, we'll get through it at the end, right? Um, verses 16 and, and 17 are, are really maybe some, two of the most significant verses in all of the Bible. Right, these are huge verses. These are transformative verses when you really dig into them. Not just read over them, but really study them, stare at them, let them sink in, soak into your heart a little bit. These are transforming, powerful words of Scripture here that God speaks through to renew people, to renew the church. Right? I mean, this is, these are the two verses that transform Martin Luther Right, the great reformer uh, ignited the Protestant Reformation. Right, Luther studied these verses; they transformed his heart, and and that's what kind of launched him to to make the ninety five theses that, that ignites the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther later in his life he reflected on these two verses here, and this is what he said, talking about their impact on him. He says, "I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression." The righteousness of God. Because, Luther says, I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously, justly in punishing the unrighteous. And my situation was that although an impeccable monk, right, um, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. 
would turn away his wrath, right? Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the, and the statement that the righteous shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through, a, through open doors into paradise. These these verses transformed him as he understood what's really being said here. It's not like, God's not saying here righteousness of God. What what Luther understood that to mean was, okay, so I need to live a perfectly righteous life for God to accept me. That's how he interpreted this. So I better go to church. I better read my Bible. I better do these things. I better be good. I better not sin. I better not lust. I better not, you know, be greedy. I better just be perfect. But what Luther knew, like, everyone knows if you're honest about your own heart and soul, is I'm not perfect. I fail. You know, and if you really read the rest of the scriptures, not only do I fail to not kill and not steal, but like as Jesus says, you know, well, if you say, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. If you've looked lustfully at someone, you've committed adultery. Like we, we are, we are guilty. We've broken all of the commandments, right? And even if you break just one of them, the word says you broke them all. So we stand guilty, condemned. But then Luther understood as he looked at these verses what it's really saying. That it's a gifted righteousness. We'll unpack that in a moment. It's a gifted righteousness that we receive through faith. It's not our work. It's Christ's work. It's his work. And it transformed that. And he, he says, when I saw that the law meant one thing and the gospel another, I broke through. I broke through. Right, And that's my hope. As we look at these words today and as we continue to journey through this book, that, that you'd break through. Right? If, if you're wrestling with, with Christianity, you don't know Jesus, and you're like, I don't know about this stuff. Like, it seems like a list of rules. I pray that you would see in here the, the true message of the gospel, that you would break through. You'd break through, and you'd cling to Christ in saving faith. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Right? It's not a concept. It's not a way of life. It's not advice for how to live and, and be right with God. It's news. Right? That's what the word means. It means good news. It's a proclamation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection to save you from your sin. And he doesn't say uh, that it brings power. He doesn't say that it has power. No, he says the gospel is power. It, it is actually the power of God in verbal form. It renews and it transforms people. When, when it is spoken, right? when the gospel is shared, when we hear that we are sinners, but Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save us from our sin, and that we can be saved through clinging to him in faith, that he's paid our debt on the cross. He's made us right with God. Not only has he forgiven us, but he's welcomed us all the way in. When we hear that good news, it it transforms. It has a power to renew hearts and minds and lives and and save people. That's what the power is for. It it saves. That power is released. Anytime the gospel is spoken, anytime the gospel is thought upon, it, it releases a power. It has a power to save a power to change anyone. It's a, the, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? And so there's in that this idea that it's a power of God for everyone. Like Paul mentions both Jews first and then to the Greeks. And what he's saying there is like, so the people, the covenant community of God who God first gave his promise to, right? It can save them. And then to the Greeks, it's not meaning just Greek people. It means the rest of the world, Right? Everyone. It's the power of God for salvation to anyone. To anyone can be saved by the gospel. Anyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Paul himself. Saul of Tarsus. Murderer of Christians. The greatest missionary who ever lived. Right? It can transform anyone. You know, we, we think about the things going on in the world today. You think about stuff going on with ISIS. And, and yeah, that's something that we should be thinking about, praying about, but really what we should be praying about is for another Saul of Tarsus to meet the resurrected Christ through the power of the gospel to be renewed and transformed, right? That's what the gospel does. 
That's what the gospel can do. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's, it's to anyone, and yet it's for everyone who believes. So there's a, a, an explicit statement there that's exclusive, too. That the only way to receive the gospel in its power is through faith. Through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus. Now, faith is not what saves you. It's not the power, right? It's not the source of the power any more than the light switch on your wall is the source of the power to the light bulb in the room, right? It, it's, a, it's a connecting point. It's a, a place where the, the power flows through. Like you, you turn on the power to come through, but it's not, the switch is not the power. Power comes from somewhere else. The power is God, right? It's His power. Right? Your faith is kind of that connecting point that opens your life to that power um, as it comes in and renews and transforms and saves you. And here's what makes the gospel so powerful. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now let's understand this, righteousness. This is a word that we don't go around saying a lot of times, well, that's really righteous. Maybe, maybe if you're from the 60s, I think they said that something. But then, I'm not that old. But um, uh, but righteous, right? That's not a word. But we can understand that when we understand what does it mean to be right with your employer? You know, to have a right relationship with your employer, that you're in a good standing with your employer, or you're in a right relationship with your, with your university, with your, with your high school, right? You're in a right relationship with your, your spouse or with your friends or whatever. You understand what that means, right? That you're, you have a right standing with them. It's a positional word, right? And it means that, that you, have no, you have no debts, right? You have no liabilities. You have nothing on your record against you to make that relationship difficult, right? To make them have, make that other party have anything against you. That's what righteousness really is getting at, this idea of a right standing, right? You are acceptable because your record is clean. Your record is clean. There's nothing on it to jeopardize your relationship, so the other party has nothing against you, and you're accepted, right? You're accepted. Now, we know with God, we all have stuff on our record, don't we? We all sin. I mean, the next few chapters, of, uh, the next few passages, beginning with the next week, Romans uh, 1, 18 through 32 is what we'll be looking at, and then through the better part of chapter 3, like, we're just going to hear, you know, everyone's sinful. Everyone is sinful, and there's going to be some hard words in that. But it's the truth. And it is offensive. Because the gospel comes and it offends everyone. But it's also the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? So we all have things on our record. So what does this mean to have a right standing? To have this clean record with God? Now, righteousness of God. You think about that. That can refer to God's character. And for sure, it does in a sense. Like he's perfectly holy, good, and just. He's righteous. Right? But as you look deeper in this text, Paul is talking about a righteousness from God, a gifted righteousness. And you kind of see that in some of this, this wording here. The righteousness of God is, is the right standing that God requires of us if we're ever to stand before him, right? to be accepted by him, and not just be like smote with wrath and anger, like just done, right? We need this right standing, but we can't get it. But what God is talking about here is a righteousness from God that he has secured through his son. You see, God, before he ever created one of us, knew we would sin against him, knew we would rebel. And he sent his son to live for us the life we never could. The perfect, righteous life. Sinless at every point. To face the temptations we face, yet be without sin. And Jesus lived that life, and then he died a sin-atoning death on the cross. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus says, this isn't sin, but he, he suffers as our sin, right? He is regarded as our sin. And he pays the debt in full through his death on the cross. And his resurrection gives testimony to that, that God accepts that sacrifice. God accepts that payment as paid in full. And what, what happens there, what, what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about, is this great exchange, right? That, that our sin goes to Christ, and his perfect life, his perfect righteousness comes to us. We're covered with it. We're, we're, we're clothed in it through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. 
You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not on you. You know? Listen, high school kids, college kids, you're in the room here. Your faith, your standing with God is not based on your parents. It's not based on the house that you grew up in. It's on you. Where's your heart in that? You're saved through your own faith in Jesus Christ. You don't earn it because you grew up in the right house. You don't earn it because you do more good things than bad things. You don't get it because you come to church. Now, we talked about it's good to come to church and gather and, and encourage one another, but, but that's not, we're not coming here to get a standing with God. Right? Repent if that's why you come here. Right? That's the wrong reason. We come here because we love Jesus, because we need Jesus, because we need one another. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The gospel renews our hearts. It's the power of God for salvation to to anyone and to everyone who believes in Jesus. We receive it as a gift. I, I love this illustration. Like, you know, forgiveness, what happens through faith in the gospel is more than just being forgiven. Do you understand that? Tim Keller has this great illustration. Like Jesus' salvation is, is not only like receiving a pardon on death row and being released from prison, right? It's that, but it, it's also your, your pardon and released from death row and released from prison, but then the, the Congressional Medal of Honor is hung around your neck, and you are treated and regarded as a hero. You are celebrated. You are welcomed in. That's the full message of the gospel. You're not just forgiven. You're clothed in the righteousness of God. And you are regarded as if you were as sinless as Jesus, as, as clean as Jesus. That's how God sees you. That's how he welcomes you. That's how he treats you through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're welcomed all the way in. You're not just forgiven to be on your own. No, you're welcomed into the family of God. That's the good news of the gospel. That's, that's the power of the gospel to transform anyone. The difference between you and Paul isn't that it was easier for him. The difference is, is that Paul actually believed that this was good news. Do you believe it's good news? Do you believe it's good news today? Right? That it, it really means what it says. You know, if you find yourself still ashamed, right? You find yourself still ashamed, then, then keep looking at it. Keep gazing at the gospel. Keep thinking on it. Let it transform you. Let it renew you. But keep looking. There's a beautiful moment in in, uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, where John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to be beheaded. And and at that moment, John the Baptist is kind of having some doubts about Jesus, right? And, And you can understand why. I mean, he, he, he proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He did that. But now look what's happened. Everything's going wrong. He's in prison. He's about to die. And so he sends these messengers to Jesus. He's, he's just like, you know, ask him, are, are you the one or should we be waiting for another? And this is Jesus' response. He basically says, go, go tell John what, what you hear and see. The blind see the lame walk. He says a few other things. And the poor have good news preached to them. And this last part's what I want you to grasp. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Let me tell you why those words are beautiful. What Jesus doesn't say is he doesn't say, how dare you question me, right? How dare you doubt me? I'm the Messiah. That's not his response. No, his response to those doubts to those questions, to that, maybe I'm feeling a little shame, maybe I'm, I'm not so certain in this moment. His response is, here, let me give you some things. Let me give you some things to think on. Let me tell you the truth about what's going on, what I'm doing. And, and, and I want you to know that I'm not offended. I'm not offended by your wrestling through your offense with me. It's not easy. It's not easy. That's what Jesus is saying there. It's not easy. It is hard. It can be offensive. And I'm not upset. I'm not offended by your struggling with my offensiveness. I hope you get through it. I hope you get through it and you break through to experience the blessedness of not being offended by me. To break through that. What what a Savior. What a Savior He is. So go to Him today with your doubts. 
Right? Go to him today with your shame. When you're feeling ashamed, go to Christ. He's, he's, not, he's not offended by your, your struggling with his offensiveness. Go to him. Look at him. Let him renew you by the power of the gospel. Let him renew your heart to faith. And may you truly find it to be good news. Good news. Good news that you must share with others. Good news that you are eager to share with others because you find it to be that good. That good that you wouldn't want to keep it for yourself. In a moment, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper which is a a time for us to both proclaim the gospel and to encounter its power, right? We're proclaiming it in in these these elements that we share in, the bread and the cup, remembering Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you on the cross to save you from your sins, to clothe you in his righteousness. This is a time for us to commune with with Jesus. It's also a time for us to commune with one another, Right? That's one of the beauties of sharing in this meal every week is, is, is knowing that we're not only sharing it together with everyone else in this room, believers in this room, but we're sharing it with believers all over the world. One body in, in Him. So believers, you're invited to come. You're invited to share in this meal uh, and the bread and the cup with that awareness today to come and wonder and awe at the glory of Jesus and what He has done, who He is. Thankfulness for that to abide with him, to be continually changed by the power of his gospel. A few different stations around the room, a couple up front here, one in the back. There's one up in the balcony up there for you guys in the cheap seats, um, right? As we continue to worship, you're free to come, believers, to break off a piece of the bread, to dip in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leans. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine or string, um, but if you're not a believer in Christ, let me just tell you this, right? This is, a, this is a sacred symbol, and you don't want to just jump into this symbol without first understanding who Jesus is and what he's done. You don't want the symbol, you want the real thing. And so in just a moment, uh, Pastor Matt and I will be in the back of the room here. We, we love to visit with you, love to pray with you, love to help you put your faith in Christ, to take him in faith, and we love to get you ready to share in the Lord's Supper for the first time. But let's pray, and let's continue to worship. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time uh, this morning to be in your word. Uh, We thank you for the power of your gospel to transform our hearts and lives. There are so many testimonies around this room that I've heard and many I haven't heard, uh, Lord, but but we could give testimony to the power of the gospel for salvation and the ways you've worked in our lives. Lord, there, there are also those in this room that, that our testimony is waiting to happen, Lord, that, that you, by the power of your gospel, can renew and transform out of whatever position they're in, whatever standing they're in, out of their offensiveness to the, how they're offended by the gospel this morning. You can renew and transform that by, by the power of your word, by the power of your son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for us. Lord, I pray you renew our hearts today more and more, all of us, to see the gospel as good news. Not as an obligation that we're dreading, but as an obligation we're eager to be a part of sharing. Taking that to our city. To see our city redeemed and renewed by its power. That we pray that you'd have your way with us and you would do what you'd want to do and you would receive all the glory, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.